Okay, so again, we said we were in 2 Corinthians, um, we're in chapter 5, we'll begin up in verse 17. Before we get into that, um, I just want to give a, a quick word, just as, as far as one of the things that we value, as far as our church, One Hope Church, um, is we value the Word of God, and we value understanding it, and understanding it in its context, and so normally on Sundays, you'll find us going through um, a book of the Bible straight through. Um, that way... We get, you know, the whole message of the Word of God, and we don't have the option to skip over difficult things. Uh, we have to tackle everything that the Word tackles, and that's a, that's a very helpful um, approach for us in ministry. We also want, because you know, we, we want to equip people, we want to equip people to know how to study the Word of God, examine the Word of God, apply it um, to their lives. Uh, we understand that Many of the people who come through our church will only be with us for a few years because they're here while being students, uh, and they're going to go on, but hopefully you know, they leave equipped um, to know the Word and also how to continue to know the Word uh, throughout their whole lives. Um, and so that's just something that we really value and care about, and I hope that you see that this morning. So verse 17 of 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature, The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us, We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And then on to chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. And working together with him, we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, at the acceptable time I listened to you, and on the day of salvation I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Uh, these are, this is a beautiful passage. It's a, it's a wonderful passage that we have um, here to get us started this morning. But just that reality that if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Or she. It's not really being gender specific there. It's he or she. But is a new creation or a new creature. The old is gone, the new has come. And then, how did that happen? It happened because, you know, if, you, if, you've come, if you're in Christ, it happened because God has sent Christ to the earth, and he lived among us, perfect, holy, sinless, and he went to the Christ on our behalf to pay the debt that we could not pay. And he, you know, he represented us at the cross, and he took on all of our sin, And so then there's this great exchange that happens when a person believes in Jesus and they are put into Christ, then uh, the sin is accounted to Christ on on his account, and the righteousness of Jesus is put back over onto our account. That's the exchange that happens there when a person believes in Christ. The work is already done. What Jesus and Jesus has already been to the cross, right? That was over two thousand years or about two thousand years ago that Christ went to the cross. So that's done. But for it to make a difference in a person's life, they have to be in Christ. We become in Christ 
through faith in him. That's how we're reconciled to God. Because we need to understand that apart from Christ, we stand as, as enemies of God. As foes of God, living in our own rebellion, living in our, our, our sin, and living according to our own standards of morality and ethics and what we think is right at any given time. And as we look at human history, we see that go all sorts of back and forth. And even when people agree that something is wrong, they still do it anyway. <coughs> you agree that lying is wrong. You've still done it. You know, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So even when we recognize and we identify and our conscience is pricked that, yes, something is wrong, it doesn't mean we won't participate in it. And so we have to be reconciled to God, and that happens, you know, through Christ. Um, next Sunday, we're going to have a, a baptism. We have a river right behind the house here, which is kind of cool. We just walk right through the woods. The river's right there. Um, have baptism. And what that represents publicly to the world is that a person is now in Christ, identified in his death as they go into the water and identified in his resurrection as they come out of the water. And that's a beautiful picture. But it says that God has given us this ministry of reconciliation. This is why the Apostle Paul went to the city of Corinth in the first place. And you remember the context here that in Paul's ministry at this time, you know, shortly after, the, and, and even the context of Jesus, that it's a, it's a Roman-dominated world, and it is sinful, it is wicked, it is evil in every way. And yet there's this message of hope, this message of good news, this message of reconciliation, but to entertain it, the Jewish person has to acknowledge that Jesus is the Messiah and that he is God to enter into that. And for the non-Jewish person, they have to understand and realize that their false gods cannot save them, that they are indeed false, they're not even real, and that there's one true and living God. And Jesus is God incarnate, God in the flesh, and that he he is the way, the path of, of reconciliation. They have to acknowledge that, so there has to be change There has to be an understanding and a change of belief, of heart, and of attitude. And there has to be humility to say, I'm wrong, and what I believed was wrong. And now I've shifted to Christ. That has to happen in a person's life. But it says, we're the now ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg on you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. And that's such a beautiful uh, concept that as ambassadors for Christ, we don't come in a lofty way like maybe an ambassador of a country, but we come in a very humble, we're supposed to come in a very humble way, begging. As a friend of ours likes to say that we're just beggars telling other beggars where to find bread. Again, it's a, it's a position of humility, position of humility that we are begging people on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. And then, again, that, that sin, verse 21, that that sin was put onto Jesus so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Not on our own, but again, in him. Everything for the follower of Jesus depends on Jesus. 
from salvation all the way through. All the way through till we see him face to face. It all has to be in him. And then he says, verse 6, verse 1, Working together with him, we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, At the acceptable time I listened to you, and on the day of salvation I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. And so anyone hearing this message needs to understand that if you haven't, if you haven't come to Christ, don't receive his grace in vain. And what that basically means is the grace of God is there. But to receive it in vain is to see it and not to believe in him, not to accept him. But just to, to go on move, moving past it. But what, you, what needs to happen is to understand that today is the day of salvation, that today is an opportunity to enter into the grace of God and to be reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ. But again, back to Paul's ministry, he says, we're working together with him, we, not just Paul, but we also urge you. So this is for the, the person who is in in Jesus, we need to understand that our ministry is this message. Our ministry is this message of reconciliation and that that ministry is for every single follower of Jesus Christ. It's not for a select few. It's not for a select few that go to a particular school. It's not for a select few from a particular economic or social status or class or whatever it is. It is for every follower of Jesus to be on mission with Jesus, living out and proclaiming this message of reconciliation. And most will never do that like I am this morning in a preaching message. Most will do that in how they live their lives at their place of work and in their neighborhoods and in their communities and how they take every opportunity that's given to speak up on behalf of Jesus and to share his love and his hope and his grace and the joy that he gives. That's how it, that's how it really happens. And that's, that's when there's impact in a community or in a city or in a nation is when the church, the people of God, are on mission with Jesus doing his work. If it's just left to those who are quote unquote full time, or that is voca- or quote unquote vocational, it'll never happen. Never get done. We all have participation in it, and it's a message. This message of reconciliation, as Jesus told us in Matthew twenty-eight, it's for the whole entire world. It's for every people group. It's for every people group. It goes back to the promise given to Abraham that through his seed, you know, all the families of the earth would be blessed. So this is God keeping his, we are part of God keeping his promise. The promise is fully kept in Jesus, but we're, we are part of God keeping his promise that every people group would be blessed as we are part of that mission to every people group. Now, we need to understand that as far as our local church goes, we do not have the capacity nor the mandate to go to every place and reach every people. We're, that's not you know, practically possible. 
but we're responsible to do our part. And so what is our part? Well, right now, our part is pretty clear. It's Athens, because this is where we are, right? This is home base. It's Athens. And, you know, the beautiful thing about Athens is it's a diverse community. And there are lots of different people here. Lots of different people here to be reached for Jesus. It's Mexico. We've, for many years now, we've had a partnership with our, a church in, our church in Mexico, that um, sister church in Mexico that we've worked with. And their ministry is amazing. We've worked with, predominantly with indigenous um, people in the mountains of the Sierra de Zangalica Range and Mountain Range in Veracruz, Mexico. Um, and that one church has started over 50 churches, works in over 100 different villages, has a full-time mission team, and they're doing their work. And what we do when we come alongside of them is we're just partnering with them and working right alongside with them. We're certainly not above them because we have so many things to learn from them. And it's beautiful. If you haven't seen that or been a part of that yet in person, we encourage you to do so. And there's many opportunities there. And then, thirdly, this is our, our newest you know, venture, is you know, a school in Tanzania for girls in a little island. Well, not a little island. It's about the size of Clark County. It's a pretty big island. Yukawere in Lake Victoria. Um, and the reason we're there is because one of our, our own, uh, Greg and Rachel, have been there several times. Rachel did her dissertation research there and you know, the technical term is gender discrimination in, you know, epidemic in the society and even in the school system. And so we would not necessarily call it gender discrimination. We call it things like sin and wickedness and evil and stuff that shouldn't happen to human beings who are made in the image of God. And so, okay, we need a safe place for these girls to be able to go to school and to hear about Jesus and have hope for their lives and a better future. So, okay, we're a part of that. So that's where we are right now, one, two, three. We, you know, we have to have it somewhat narrowed because of our capacity. But we pray God would even grow our capacity. Why? Not so that we can be glorified, but so that the mission of Jesus would go before it and that Jesus would be glorified. What's our purpose? Our purpose is the ministry of reconciliation, to partake in that mission with Jesus. So reading on, let's move chapter 6, 3 through 13. We give no cause for offense in anything so that the ministry will not be discredited, but in everything commending ourselves as servants of God in much endurance, in afflictions, in hardships, in distresses, in beatings, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in hunger, in purity, in knowledge, in patience, in kindness, in the Holy Spirit, in genuine love, in the word of truth, in the power of God, by the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left, by glory and dishonor, by evil report and good report, regarded as deceivers and yet true, as unknown yet well-known, as dying yet behold we live, as punished yet not unto death, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing all things. Our mouth has spoken freely to you, O Corinthians. Our heart is open wide. You are not restrained by us, but you are restrained in your own affections. Now in a like exchange I speak as to children, 
open wide to us also. It's beautiful. There, the idea that this ministry of reconciliation is to be a pure ministry. That's our second point this morning, is to be a pure ministry. We give no cause for offense in anything. Well, and that's really, really important. Why? Because the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is offensive enough on its own. Because it starts with, you're not adequate, you've offended a holy God, you're not good enough, and you can't be good enough. You need Jesus. It's an offensive message, because it strikes right at the pride of the human heart. It's an offensive message. So how we go about the ministry better not be offensive. Because that message is the barrier itself, and it's the only one that's necessary. How we go about, how we conduct ourselves, we should be known as being authentic in our faith. Now he says here, you know, there's a, there's a, a lot that Paul and those with him have gone through in their ministry, and most of us can't say, you know, we've gone through such things, that we've been, you know, beaten or imprisoned for the sake of Jesus, for the name of Jesus. Yet, our ministry should be known as being authentic. And even when people lie about us, others should know the truth. Even if we're lied about, even if we're discredited, as he says here, regard or regarded as deceivers, he says, yet we're true. So he says, you know, even, and, and that's important to remember, because even if you are striving to be pure in your ministry and in your heart and how you conduct things, because we live in a sinful world and because we have a real enemy, Satan, and because people are easily deceived, because people are sinful, there will be those who will attempt to discredit and they will use any means at their disposal, and lying is a good one. Making things up, revisionist history, all sorts of things are able to be used um, toward those ends. Yet we need to be very careful to give no cause for offense in anything. And I think it's one of the reasons why Paul says earlier, you know, we, we strove to make known to you Christ alone. Like, they were kind of like a Jesus-only ministry in terms of, like, of, of their message. They didn't want it to get diluted and corrupted by other things and other agendas. And as we, we look back in history, even a lot of good missionary efforts in the world were corrupted by the culture that came along with colonialism, now neocolonialism. If those things are kind of going like this, it's okay. Don't worry about it too much, but just understand we, need, we have necessity for a purity in ministry. And how do we get there? Because when we go to these other cultures, we have to be very careful. Do we want people to be reconciled to God? Do we want them to have Jesus? Or is there even an unspoken agenda that's to make people American? That's not the ministry Jesus gave us. Remember, America didn't exist when Jesus gave his commission to the church. And so we need to be very careful in our approach that we are giving Jesus and that we are trusting that 
you know, what, we, what we need, you know what our culture needs? Jesus. You know what our culture needs? To go back and look again at the word of God. And say, and to, you know, before trying to change anybody else's culture, maybe we should examine our own. And I go beyond even American culture. What about the culture, your own culture? Your own life? Your own family? What is your culture? What are the values? And does it line up with what is found in the Word of God? Or is it just a bunch of other mess that's in there that's clouding the picture? We need to have a pure ministry so that we will not be discredited. And we have to say there's been a lot of things done in the name of Jesus that have been discrediting. We don't want to have anything to do with that. And we kind of just, you know, if, when you take a Jesus-only approach and a Bible-only approach to your, to your life, it, there's a lot less baggage to have to deal with. But we notice one other thing here before we move on, that we have to be willing to pay a price for Jesus. The problem that we have now is that, you know, we, we all want the crown, but very few are willing to endure the cross. Everybody wants the crown of having ministry and, and, you know, having value and doing things that matter in the world. I mean, that, that sounds all good, right? We like that. Sounds very joyful. But how many are willing to suffer, to endure hardship, to endure sleeplessness? And... You know, there needs, it, by necessity, the, the mission of Jesus has cost to it. By necessity. And if it doesn't have cost, then that's usually when it becomes very diluted and, and Jesus ends up becoming a secondary message and a secondary issue. But what, is it, what does it cost you to follow Jesus? What is, it, what is your cost? What is your price? There needs to be something because Jesus and his mission are to have the priority in our lives. And if that's the priority, then something else is going to have to give. Next week's chapters that Michael will be going through are on you know, stewardship and, and giving. And I would just point to that and say, you know, sometimes it needs to hurt. Sometimes it needs to hurt because the ministry of Jesus is valuable. It's worthy. So let's go on. 14 through 18, so we finish chapter 6. Do not be bound together with unbelievers, for what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness, or what harmony has Christ and the devil, or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever, or what agreement has a temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. So here we have 
a focused ministry. A focused ministry. A ministry that, doesn't, that is not compromising. You know, Jesus taught us to be in the world, but not of the world. That's what Jesus taught his disciples. You know, be in the world, but not of the world. We have to live in this world, but we do not have to participate in its sin, its wickedness, its evil. <coughs> so the emphasis here is definitely on the side of not of the world. You know, and it's for obeying Jesus in this, in this matter. And he gives some examples, just some things that will help, you know, that we can apply to our lives to help us have a focused ministry and not to compromise our purpose. So when he talks about being unequally yoked, there, there are applications that we can make there. You often hear that, or not being bound together. We often hear that in the context, you know, just automatically as marriage. I believe that's here, certainly, but there's more application to it than just that. But we'll talk about that one just for a moment because we have, you know, young people. We have young people that are getting ready to get married. Um, we have people that would like to be married one day. Well, what sort of person are you looking to marry? You need to marry a Jesus first person. You need to marry a person where you are very confident that Jesus is more important to that other person than you are. If that other person puts you above Jesus, that's trouble. And that's setting you up for trouble. It's not enough for someone just to say, yes, I'm a Christian. And you to go, okay, I can date slash potentially marry you one day. That is not Adequate. It needs to be a person who puts Jesus first, puts Jesus above you and above everything else. So how do you make sure that? Don't date anyone who you're not 100% confident has that agenda. Because once your affections go there, it's hard to pull back. It's hard to... Think rationally and to evaluate when you're quote unquote in love. So you need, while you still have your brain on, make the evaluation and ask that serious question. You might be attracted to the other person's cuteness or whatever it is, but while you still have your brain on, get to know those serious questions before you take another step. That'll save you a lot of trouble. Again, it's not good enough for someone to claim to be a follower of Jesus. You need to see it in their life, and you need to know what they believe, and to know that they're consistent in their life and their doctrine, their life and their practice. We got that? You got to know it. You got to know it, certainly. Otherwise, you're setting yourself up for a lot of misery. Same thing we'd say about you know business. If you'd say, "Hey, somebody wants to you know you got a business idea," you, it would probably be pretty unwise to have somebody who has a, a very different agenda in life than you have, and say, "Okay, I'm going to link myself with this person financially, and our business is going to be you know joined together. We're going to do this together." If you make that compromise, then there may be other compromises that you're asked to make down the road when it comes into the morality and the ethics of how that business is run. 
And what's the purpose of the business? And where, what are the profits of said business used for? You know, all of those sorts of things, you know, we need to evaluate. And so you don't get, you know, so pulled in. There's a statement that is good to go by. It says it's better to be divided by the truth than to be united in a law. It's better to be divided by the truth than to be united in a law. You can't live according to the world's standards of priorities, morality, and ethics, and at the same time be on mission with Jesus. It's not possible. You have to have his priority. You have to have his morality. You have to have his ethic. Be very wary of the little compromises because they add up quickly. So let's move forward, chapter 7, 1 through 10. Therefore, one last point before we do. We'll go right there. But he says, I will dwell in them. We understand if you are a believer in Jesus, if you are in Christ, then God dwells in you through the Holy Spirit. That you are the temple of God. That God doesn't made, does not dwell in buildings made with hands. You will not find God uniquely in any temple or any church building. But things have changed radically with Jesus at the cross. And God dwells within his people. So there's that call there of understand that and that's why you're not supposed to link the temple of God you're not supposed to bind the temple of God up with things that are not of God because you are the temple of God that's why you're not to be bound together with someone who is not also the temple of God so chapter 7 verse 1 therefore having these promises behold let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit perfecting holiness in the fear of God make room for us in your hearts we wronged no one we corrupted no one we took advantage of no one i do not speak to condemn you for i have said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together great is my confidence in you great is my boasting on your behalf i am filled with comfort i am overflowing with joy in all our affliction For even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side, conflict without, fears within. But God, who comforts the depressed, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you, as he reported to us your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that that letter caused you sorrow, though only for a little while. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. We'll stop there for a minute. We're talking about renewal for those who are on mission. And 
what we've, what we've seen uh, in our study of Corinthians, um, that the church of Corinth had a lot of problems. And there was a lot of effort, multiple letters written, you know, an extra, another visit you know, that Paul made that was very short, um, you know, and, and finally you know, Titus going. And so we see there's a, a lot of effort and a lot of work that's gone into helping this church get back on the right track you know, with Jesus. A lot of effort. But it's happening. And in a certain degree, we could say it's happened at this point. And so he says, you know, having these promises, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. And so that's in the context of, okay, do you need to be renewed you know, yes, you've been reconciled to God if you're in Christ, but do you need to be renewed in Christ so that you can participate fully in mission with him? What compromises with the world have you made? What compromises with sin have been made? And does your flesh and spirit need to be cleansed? Well, my contention is that for every follower of Jesus, on a regular basis, there needs to be this cleansing that happens. That's why every week when we take the bread and the cup, we give the instruction, you know, it's for followers of Jesus to give thanks and to remember what Jesus did for us at the cross and to remember that, hey, he's coming back. But before we take it, we know the word of God instructs us to examine our hearts and to say, Lord, you know, have I sinned against you? Has my attitude been wrong? Has, you know, my perspective been wrong? Change, you know, show me any sin that's within me. Cleanse me. And so we have those short accounts, but sometimes we fail, even while we're taking that, to make those short accounts as we should, and then things can build to where there's more and more trouble until we found ourselves in a pretty dark place. And that happens also for most every follower of Jesus at some point. And so again, what is the answer? The answer is cleansing ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. 1 John 1.9 tells believers that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Isn't that beautiful? That, well, listen, that promise. If we confess our sins, if we you know, humble ourselves before God and admit our wrongdoing, admit what's wrong within us, it's in our hearts, it says he is faithful and just to forgive us. He always keeps that promise. And he doesn't just forgive us, he also cleanses us from our unrighteousness. He renews us. He cleanses our hearts, he renews us, he refreshes our spirit, and we're, our fellowship is restored. Again, we have to remember there's a difference between relationship and fellowship. If you're in Christ, your relationship with God is permanent. But your fellowship with God is something that fluctuates. And it doesn't fluctuate based on God and his character and who he is. It, based, it fluctuates based on our closeness to God, our abiding or not abiding in Jesus. And when we're not abiding in Jesus, we get corrupted with the things of this world. And then things, if they're not addressed Early, they get uglier and uglier and uglier. 
But even if they've gotten really ugly, grab hold of the truth and of the hope that if you confess your sins, that he is faithful and just to forgive and that he will cleanse you. But understand this, because this is what he says about this. He talks about there's a difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. There's a difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. What's the difference? He says, For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God, or godly sorrow, produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. So repentance, what does repentance mean? It means to turn from. It means basically to, to turn 180 degrees. You go in one direction, you go another direction, opposite direction. To turn from it. So that godly sorrow is based on the reality that you've offended a holy God, or that I've offended a holy God. It's not so much based in the you know, human or worldly like, consequences of our sins. But its root is in relationship with God, that I've offended a holy God. And I don't want to offend God. So I'm sorrowful, deep, in the core of who I am, and turn you know, from my sin and toward God's grace. And he says that results in a couple of things. One, it means you're not going to lose out on your reward in terms of lose out in the participation of the mission of Jesus. You're not going to lose out on that because you know, you're, you're turning from the sin and not continuing on in it. And it produces salvation. And this isn't what we're talking about when we talk about initially being in Christ and being you know, saved from the penalty of sin, being saved from hell, being saved from separation from God. What we're talking about here is being saved from the loss of a useful life in the kingdom of God. That we don't want to waste our lives. God doesn't want our lives to be wasted. We want to be saved from that. And so godly sorrow, godly sorrow is powerful, but worldly sorrow produces death. Because worldly sorrow is only sorrowful because one is caught or because one doesn't like certain repercussions of one's sin, but it doesn't acknowledge the offense to God. And it doesn't have the repentance factor in it, which means the desire to turn from it. It's sorry for the consequences, but when it's honest with itself, when you're honest with yourself, it's the deep desire of, or the deep understanding of, I don't intend to change, I intend to go right back to this tomorrow, or the next day. It's basically, God, save me from the consequences but the heart saying, but I'm going to do it again and again and again. And I don't really want to stop. That's what godly sorrow is. I mean, sorry, that's what worldly sorrow is. It's the opposite of godly sorrow. And it produces 
death. It destroys. And that's why it's so serious, because we cannot allow any sin in our lives, however seemingly small, to take root and have place in our hearts. For followers of Jesus, we want to be on mission with him. And so let's close up as we read the last of the chapter. He says, For behold, verse 11, For behold what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow, has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong, and everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the offender, nor for the sake of the one offended, but that your earnestness on our behalf might be made known to you in the sight of God. For this reason we have been comforted. And besides our comfort, we rejoice even much more for the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For if in anything I have boasted to him about you, I was not put to shame. But as we spoke all things to you in truth, so also our boasting before Titus proved to be the truth. His affection abounds all the more towards you, as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice that in everything I have confidence in you. Again, we see there's been a lot of corrections that were necessary in the church at Corinth. They've been responding now to those corrections. And the question for us is, if you're a follower of Jesus, a follower of Jesus this morning, how do you respond to correction? How do you respond to correction? Usually, in, in, you know, have, have you ever met somebody you just can't teach them anything? And nobody can teach them anything? because they have the pride and they believe that they're the wisest person in the room, even when they're not. We can't be like that. We have to be humble. We have to be willing to hear from another brother or sister, you're wrong. We have to be willing to hear from the Holy Spirit, you're wrong. We have to be willing to be corrected. And how you respond to correction in your life will determine how mature in Christ you can become how much Jesus, like Jesus, you can become. Because if you are not willing to be corrected, then you really can't be in true fellowship with other people because true fellowship with other people requires accountability. And you can, you'll be tapped out pretty early on in your growth and in your potential to do good in this world for the name and for the glory of Jesus if you're unwilling to receive a corrective word. We also need to be careful when the Lord lays on our hearts to give correction, to do so with humility and with love and with truth, not trying to win anything, but with hope for the person's best in Christ. Not for a personal agenda, but for God's agenda. And our hope and our prayer is that we can have confidence in one another. Can we have this confidence in one another that one year from now, five years from now, 10, 15, 20 years from now, and on and on, that you and I will be walking faithfully with Jesus on mission with him? And we need to be able to have that sort of confidence in one another. But in order to have that confidence in one another, we have to live according to what we've already Seen that the mission is our, you know, Jesus is our priority and his mission right along with it. 
that we're striving to be pure in our, in our mission, that we're not making compromises in our mission, that we are willing to confess and to acknowledge when we're wrong and to be renewed as we go along a life of mission. And if we're doing those things, then we can have confidence in one another that, yes, you will finish well. But if those things aren't the priority now, we can't have confidence that they'll be the priority a year from now or five years from now or 25 years from now. So now's a good point in time to say, what is my priority? Is Jesus really my priority? And am I about his mission? And what have I compromised? What's gotten in the way? Do I need to confess before the Lord and rid myself of some things? To rid my flesh and my spirit of things and to put on the holiness of God. So that's our challenge for every follower of Jesus. And if this morning you're, you say, you know, maybe you wouldn't say, I would have called myself a Christian. But if your life doesn't match up with any of these things, then we have to really ask the question, am I truly a follower of Jesus? Because if I say I'm Superman, but I never fly over buildings, fly around or jump over buildings or save people's lives or, you know, whatever, be like, yeah, you might say you're Superman. You might even wear a T-shirt with a big S on it, but I don't see Superman there. Are you really? That'd be valid, right? Well, you might say that you're a Christian, But if there hasn't been the true humbling before God, and if that hasn't, you know, to say, Lord, I'm wrong, and Jesus is my only hope. If you haven't gotten to that point, then are you a follower of Jesus? If there's not consistency in life along those lines of, Lord, forgive me, I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner and I need your cleansing today. And if you're not on mission with Jesus, then you may say you're a Christian and you might wear a t-shirt that proclaims such a thing, but are you? Now, that's not a question for me to answer, but it is a question for you to answer before God. Because we live in the cultural Christian South still today. And demographically, people will self-identify as Christian and have no idea what that means. It's one of the reasons I prefer terms like follower of Jesus, disciple of Jesus, because that word has lost a lot of its meaning, unfortunately and sadly. But are you? You need to be able to answer that with confidence. If, you, if the answer to that is, no, I'm not, what you see clearly to be reconciled with God is through faith in Jesus Christ. Believe and be saved. Today is the day of salvation. And then you can remember, you can have someone to remember, and you can immediately give thanks by taking that bread and that cup this morning, saying, thank you, Jesus, for what you've done in my life. Thank you for saving me. And if you already are a follower of Jesus, then we encourage you this morning to take that bread and take that cup and do so first with confession as needed. And for each person, it's different. And Jesus is our high priest, and so you go straight to the Father through him. And you make things renewed, and then you come and you participate. You take that bread and you take that cup and you say thank you, and you say, yes, Lord, I am on mission with you. And Lord, I might be 
not very good at that right now. And Jesus is okay with that. Because ultimately it's about him. And he can take things that are not very grand and do pretty amazing and awesome things with them. He needs our willingness and our availability. That is, that is so much more necessary than talent and gifts. But our willingness, our availability, our humility are much more needed than how smart you are and how much you know. So we take it humbly and we say thank you. And we say, Jesus, this is for you and we're about your mission. In Athens, in Mexico, in Tanzania, and wherever else you lead us, collectively, individually, yes, Jesus, we're on your mission. That's our hope for each one. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for your love and your goodness to us. Lord, please... This morning, cleanse us and forgive us. Lord, each in our own individual hearts, but also collectively, Lord, we know we are not all we should be. And Lord, it's not so that we could be known or that we could somehow be viewed as great, but Lord, the tragedy of not being what we should be is your glory, your name, and your honor. And you're not getting all of that that you deserve. Because Jesus, you are the perfect claim of God who was sacrificed in our place. And so we thank you, Jesus. And as we take that bread and that cup this morning, we remember you and we say thank you. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.